What's up, guys? Welcome back to episode number 41. Thank you so much for coming back and tuning in. This week is going to be with yours truly. I'm going to get interviewed by my good friend Stanford Spurlock, who I spent some time working in the music business with. He worked at Island Records and Interscope Records for a while. He's also in the clinical psychology program at Antioch University with me. We go into my past, my dark days with addiction, what I learned, and how it essentially birthed the podcast, my uh, experience going through and overcoming addiction. I attribute so much of that to why I wanted to create this platform. And then we tie that in with music as well, how music is another space where people bear their souls and we get to feel connected. We feel seen, we feel heard, and we feel healing like they do in 12-step rooms and people recovering from addictions. Um, they sit in rooms and bear their souls and get to feel connection. That's the whole motif behind the podcast. You know, connection is magic. And I've seen the healing effects of what happens when we get to feel connected. We get into all that and more. Really excited to have you guys check this one out. Much love. Welcome, everybody, to Connection is Magic. I'm your host, Samson Shulman, a former music executive turned podcaster and coach. In a world obsessed with the highlight reel and keeping our difficulties hidden behind the curtain, we end up feeling lonely and isolated, and opportunities for human connection are missed. On this podcast, we dive deep with our guests and get them to share those dreaded, unfiltered pieces. We learn how to make lemonade out of life's lemons and realize adversity isn't sent to break us, but rather shape us into the greatest versions of ourselves. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Now let's begin our journey back home to Connection. What up, y'all? Welcome to episode number 41 of Connection is Magic. Okay, this one is very special. Uh, it's going to be out of the box where I put myself on the hot seat, the proverbial hot seat. So I brought in my boy, Stanford Spurlock, who is a former music guy, current master's in clinical psychology candidate at the university I go to, Antioch University. University we go to. What's going on? What's good, bro? Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Pleasure's all ours. <laughs> so... I'm going to let you dig into just for a quick minute. We were talking, this had to be at least maybe like maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago, definitely pre pandemic um, mm -hmm. about how you felt like with the pod that I should go into a certain subject, which maybe isn't talked about a lot. And I just want you yeah, to no, touch I, on that I, a little bit because that's what inspired this too. For sure. I mean, I think that, you know, I've known you, God, for a handful of years now, and I think you have uh, experiences that 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 don't get touched on a whole lot. And I think specifically with regards to your history with gambling addiction, you know, that's something that's always been fascinating to hear you speak about. I think it's not something that people think about a lot when they think of addiction. I think a lot of people think uh, substance abuse, drugs, alcohol, etc. But especially in hip hop records, <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, no, but but, but less of the focus is on behavioral addictions, and you know, I think being in this program and learning about addiction more in depth, seeing how broad it really is. I mean, I thought it'd be interesting for me and for your listeners to sort of get a better understanding of of, of your experience with it and and sort of your journey. Um, 
with gambling addiction specifically and, and sort of how it started, sort of how it manifested, what it was that made you realize, you know, the moment where you realized like, I got to get help, how you got help. I mean, I think that's all, that's all really valuable. Yeah. That's a whole storyline there. There's a lot to talk about. I guess the first time I noticed that there was a problem with gambling was when I was 15 years old. Actually, I just turned 16. I had a Jeep Grand Cherokee Mm -hmm. and, um, and I had like a super sick stereo system and it was like maybe $1,800 at the time. And I basically bet a fellow student the stereo system and like he was going to put up 500 bucks or something. It wasn't even like equal equivalent value. (laughs) Um, and what were you betting on? We were betting on a series of shots, uh, that we were going to do, um, at a, like, like drinking shots, basketball shots. Yeah. So like, I just remember us being out there and like tons of high school kids around. There's maybe like 15 kids around. They like couldn't believe what was happening. And uh, I can't even believe what was happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so best of five or best of seven, three point shot. So let me, let me make sure I'm getting this. Yeah. So you and your homie are like, okay, we're each going to take seven three pointers. And you were betting on yourself to cash more of the shots than he was. And if you were to do so, you would get $500 from him. And if he hit more, he would get your car stereo. My very nice car stereo. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it was like, and it it wasn't parody either, which was kind of odd right there. But yeah, I mean, either I was like supremely confident or I was just an idiot. It was like one of the two. Right. Well, (laughs) so I ended up losing that. And how many um, of the, say you took seven shots. How many did you make? I might've made, he was actually much better than what I expected. So, so I don't know if he like hustled me, but I, like the dude did not look, he wasn't athletic looking. He was uh, kind of this, he was pretty overweight and just seemingly unathletic looking. I remember. Yeah. And he, and he had a, he had a jumper. So um, it's like Draymond green like, <laughs> yeah, looks exactly. incredibly unathletic. <laughs> But I mean, occasionally <laughs> it's a three pointer. So that's, that's a great example. So kids around were going nuts. It was like, you know, like in high school, like, like for sure you're extra sensitive to like peer stuff. So I was just like super humiliating. And like, I was like very depressed for like, I don't know, took like, took like two weeks where I was like, just super depressed. But you, and, but you gave um, this theory. I had to. Yeah. And so that was the first time you recognized you, you know, there might be a problem. When was the first time, like, how did you get into gambling or to betting or all of it? Prior to that, there was an incident about 11 years old with my father at the horse race track. I think you know this, but my father had a stroke when I was young, which like definitely uh, shaped my formative years. So is that how he passed? We're not a hundred percent sure how he passed. He was actually in Germany trying to get cutting edge treatment for, uh, for stroke recovery. And then he passed in Germany. So we're not a hundred percent, but this was something that we could do together. You know, it was like, well, we couldn't, um, cause he was in a wheelchair. So we couldn't like play baseball together necessarily. I guess we're able to do this. And he was kind of like a really over the top gregarious guy. He actually had bipolar. 
So he would go on these manic episodes and just get a limo at like 2 a.m. for no reason. So mm-hmm. that's that was an experience there. And then prior to that, it gets even crazier. My mom, when I was like six or seven, I remember us being in the casino in Atlantic City. And she would be like, she would be on the main floor. I don't know if you've ever been to a casino, but they have like that main floor where there's like the slots and everything like that. They want everybody to have to like walk through there. So um, we were walking through the main area of the casino gambling floor where the, all mm-hmm. the slot machines are. Right. And so she was like, which machine do you think I should play? Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I would pick. And then, and I remember she won a couple of times and she, you know, good job. Good job. You know? So you're, you're a young kid, you're exposed to gambling, you know, very young, mm-hmm. at a young age. And, yeah. you know, it's, you have this experience with, your mother and with your father your father passes away you were what 12 and a half you said yeah 12 and a half so then what happens after that i mean you know between your father passing and losing your car stereo in three-point competition it's about three and a half very formative years of adolescent life right i mean how did how did your relationship to gambling manifest in that time because it sounds like well, that's a, to go from to go from betting on horses as a kid with your dad mm-hmm. to betting, you know, eighteen hundred dollars yeah. stereo of, yeah. something of your prized possession. I mean, yeah. it sounds like there's a lot that kind of has to happen in that space. So, I mean, what what was sort of unfolding in that time when my dad passed? We all grieve differently, obviously, and mm-hmm. like the grieving process, shorter for some, longer for some. Um, can end up being destructive, right? For some people, they become self-destructive. Basically, what I discovered later, um, what drove me initially into gambling was self-destruction. Like one mm-hmm. of the one of the questions that they ask um, in all the, I believe they ask this in all the addiction rooms, whether it's alcohol, drugs, um, is like, have you ever? participated in your addiction because you wanted to punish yourself or subconsciously self-destruct something to the effect of that. I realized that's kind of what I was doing because by the end of my gambling addiction, which I'll, 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 I'll go into a little, a little bit on like the highlight points. Right. But by the end of it, I just kind of feel like at 23 is when I stopped that. It felt like I was in like an eight year tailspin where you don't know which way is up or down. And then you just like come to. But like, what happened between you losing your car stereo system and 23? And bottoming out in the addiction? Most diseases are progressive. Like we had on a heroin addict, like last episode, they talked about the progress, the progressive nature of addiction. That game became me on eight mile, which we all know the movie. There's a lot of like super rough liquor stores and some of those liquor stores made fake IDs back in the day and uh, paid like 20 bucks. I got a fake ID and I went to Canada with my fake ID and I was able to get into the casino um, when I was, yeah, 17. So that's where, that's where it went to. And by the way, I won $3,000 at 17, which basically hooked me. That was like the worst thing that could have happened at the time. I was off to the races because I thought it was like, oh, this is easy. 
And so fast forward, I'm skipping school after I win this $3,000. Like I won that $3,000 when me and a couple of friends went to Canada. Uh, But then afterwards, I was so addicted. I began skipping high school and going to the casino by myself during the day. How are you sort of bankrolling your, your, your gambling endeavors? Selling shit. I remember selling... I had a really nice TV that I sold for like 800 bucks, which is a lot of money at, you know, 16. So that got me. (laughs) We had a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that, that was one of the, one of the big ways I fueled it at the time. And then I might've sold a little, a little weed at the time too. and made a little money that way. It was like, you know, I, I just, every time I scratched together, like 200 bucks, you know, I'd be able to go. Like, what was the feeling when you were sort of got pulled into, you were going to go gamble? Was it the potential to make money? Was it the potential to win? I mean, it was the action. It It was the, it was the, it was like the, the, I was doing research on this. Uh, I can't remember what book I was reading, but the author talked about like knowing you're going to go use is almost more exhilarating than actually using you're on that jewel thing still. Right. So it's like, I don't know if you'd run out of jewel. Are you thinking like, and you're driving to the store to get more jewel? Like, I'm sure maybe do your juices get going a little bit where you're like, I'm going to get more jewel or I don't, can you relate to that? It's very timely. Actually. I'm all out of jewel pods. I'm like, <laughs> oh fuck. Like I could go to the store and get it, but I'm also just like too lazy to do it. You know, I think that's really interesting. You're saying like, the feeling, the rush comes when you're thinking about going to do this thing, yeah. you know, in your case, gambling, that was almost as much of a payout as when you're actually, actually doing, doing it. it. Yeah. A thousand percent. So you're, so you're a teenager, you have this fake ID, you're going up to Canada. I won the 3000 life changing at 17. I'm going now skipping school. Right. And I remember I go just a few short days later, I go with one friend and this was, this was the rock bottom, most painful moment of the whole round. And you're how old at this time? I'm still 17. This is a few days later after I won that 3000. Right. So I go with one kid. He's the same age as me. We go to a casino boat in Canada at like 2 AM on like a Tuesday pre cell phone. I mean, they were there, but they weren't like, you know, everywhere. Yeah, 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 everywhere. Yeah. So this is I like I can't even believe I'm saying this because just the thought process is wild. So we're at the door. I go first to the security guard, show him my ID. I get let in. My friend is behind me. He doesn't get accepted. The guy rejects his ID. And what do I do? I stay knowing that this is my guy. This is my ride to another country. I'm in another country, Stanford. Yeah. I stay. And so you just say, fuck it. You're like, <laughs> I'm not. Cause so I'm, what thinking, is your, what is your I'm thinking do? to myself, like, I don't know when I'm going to get in again. I got a fake ID. Like it worked this time. It might not work next time. So I'm I got staying. a fake ID, dog. <laughs> I'm staying. You stay in the casino boat and your boys just like. 2 a.m. on a Tuesday. Of course he's out. Yeah. He might've waited like 15 minutes, maybe max, but like, I'm not coming out in 15 minutes. Like probably not coming out. In fact, I had a pager at the time and I think, I think he definitely did page me once or twice. And then I didn't hit back. 
you know, you could like back in the day, you could like page people to a payphone. So yeah. he hit me from payphone and so didn't get back. And then, yeah. And then, and then he left and, uh, man, I'm getting like, getting like chills. I feel the palms getting sweaty right now as I'm telling the story. Oof. So I stay and I lose all my money. I lose like 25, 2400 or something like in, a, in not a long time. I'm obviously devastated because now I'm in another country and I have no ride and now I have no money. And it's like, now it's like 3am and I have no cell phone and I'm calling collect. And I'm like calling this guy's brother a bunch of times because he obviously would have found out what happened through his brother. Right. So I think that's why I was hitting up his brother. His brother eventually comes to Canada like the next day, but dude, he comes at like noon. All I remember was the last thing I remember was I'm on a bench in front of the casino and I'm sitting, I don't even think I'm sleeping on a bench. Like I'm just sitting. I maybe slept in the grass somewhere. I, I don't remember. That's the crazy thing. So your, 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 your boy's brother picks you up. I mean, yeah. And I'm out of it. And I'm, no, I just think he can't believe the story. <laughs> like he thinks it's a wild so then story. What, what's that? And what we're in the tunnel car ride. Yeah. What is that car ride like back? Yeah. I'll never forget this feeling as long as I live. I'm in the tunnel going from Canada to Detroit. And there's these like really eerie, like yellow, pink faded lights that are like in this tunnel. And I just remember like these lights hitting me and I'm like half fucking wake. And I'm just like seeing these fucking depressing ass lights. And I just was sick to my stomach. I literally wanted to vomit, but like couldn't. And we go back to his crib where his brother is and his brother's pissed, I think on some level, which I don't know, maybe, you know, I left him there or sorry, he left me there, but you know, I left him at first. I, I don't know. So, and I sleep for like a day and a half. I heal takes a while, maybe like a month. And then what was, was this, was the pain and the discomfort was that because of sort of the situation and how it unfolded in the end or because of the money you lost? I mean, what was fueling that sort of just mm. emptiness inside of you. It's like kind of like punching yourself in the face. That's literally what it feels like. You're making decisions to like your detriment. You know what I mean? You know, in a way that's probably like with maybe a more relatable addiction that people know it's like alcohol, right? Think about having like the greatest job in the world. And then you come into work wasted off of alcohol and lose this greatest job in the world. Wouldn't you be kicking yourself? Like, what the fuck did I do? Like I had this opportunity and I came to work drunk. Like that's about like the most understandable analogy I can give to like how I felt. Why am I making this decision to like fuck my life up and hurt myself? If you don't have a gambling problem and like you had a few thousand bucks or something to your name at 17 and like you gambled 150 bucks or something like that's a different story. For sure. Um, yeah. But, but when you, when you do what I did now, I mean, I think, there are people who deal with trauma, you know, with different vices and different, have different ways of coping with shit. What happens after this? I mean, this is, seems like a pretty seismic experience for you, but if you're 17 roughly and, 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 you know, it sounds like there's about six more years of you navigating this addiction. I mean, you're, you're fighting this addiction. I mean, at what point is it like, 
I need to fix this or get help or, or, or change this or talk to someone or, you know, we'll get there. I'll tell you just one more chapter. I developed, well, you know, about sports, like you can bet on sports, right? So just to go into the progressiveness of it, like I discovered sports betting. And then the worst thing about sports betting is you can bet on sports with, through a bookie without having any money. So I eventually would run up these like 3000 or $5,000 debts and have no money. And then, you know, and then would have, you know, threats knocking on your door. Threats, yeah. yeah. Threats. The block was hot, son. I remember being with a girlfriend like at the time and she was like super scared. I think two girlfriends that it happened through a couple relationships, but yo, shit was really, really bad. And then credit cards became possible, right? At mm. once you're 18. So then opened up credit cards, like maxed out credit cards. What got me to stop all of this was when I realized that I was more afraid of winning than I was losing mm. because winning gave me a higher ledge to drop from. I remember being at roulette, like betting on a number or whatever, and almost hoping that that number didn't win. Because mm-hmm. I knew that if I won that 25 bucks was going to give me a thousand bucks and then I was going to lose that thousand bucks and just feel worse. And I remember walking out of the casino and I was like, I'm, I'm done. Like I, I, I just knew that I was done. As I entered like the 12 step rooms and it works just like AA, you know, mm-hmm. um, same principles and outline are there for whether it's heroin, gambling, sex, all it became the catalyst to, I was gifted like a whole new life. And, um, and now it's funny, I'm, I'm absolutely grateful for going through those dark times because they've, you know, made me who I am. And like, I can, I'm more, I'm more aware, more knowledgeable, more compassionate, more, it's like very cliche to say, but like all these dark experiences have like ended up becoming like shit. Like it's what helped birth the podcast. That's really, mm-hmm. that's really where it started. Right. Cause in everyday society, when you're going through a hard time, you can't talk about going through a hard time. Like if you're just out there in the streets and people ask you how your day is, like, do people ever get into like, Oh, I'm actually having a shitty day. Like no, like you just keep, keep it moving. But I noticed in these rooms, people were being real. People were like letting the guard down be like, yo, like me and my wife aren't getting along or total strangers. were just letting you in on what was really what. And that's what birthed the podcast. I'm like, yo, why can't, why does somebody need an addiction to get, access to like what we all need as part of our humanity. We all need mm-hmm. a place to go to talk about how we're feeling and what really is. That's what drew me to music. People connect through music, right? People, it's like artists, it's like, you know, bearing their souls. And then we get healing off of that, you know, that lifts us up or, or we relate like, so I was like, yo, this is happening in music. And this is happening in these like 12 step rooms. It's like, why not? establish like a, a podcast to like dig into that, which everybody needs access to. So that's mm-hmm. like, that's the whole vibe behind the podcast connection is magic. Going through support groups and 12 step programs. I mean, there is an alliance you build or a community um, of people who, you know, are sort of bearing their souls and, 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 and letting their guard down. And, and, and with that comes, a connection, right? Because you have this community of people who, you know, while their experiences might be different, I mean, they can relate. And it's people who sort of help you feel like 
you're not entirely alone. And, and I think connection is, is huge. I mean, especially in the times of, of, of COVID and, and what we've all collectively been going through. The connection has been stripped away from us in a lot of ways. And so I think things like this are super important and, and just sort of, you know, reminding us why it's valuable and, and the ways in which we can uh, benefit from it. Because you never know, there could be somebody out there listening to, to something like this and hearing you speak so openly about your struggles with gambling addiction who they themselves have a gambling addiction, but because it's not talked about as frequently, they don't have any resources, but, but something like this can, can really help uh, provide them with some hope or, or courage to, 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 to speak more freely about it and, and, and maybe get help. So I think it's, it's, it's all spot on. Are there any ways in which your past experience with gambling, you know, lingers in your life today? So, Around 36, after like a year of being outside of the music business, Stanford, I realized like, oh shit, I was managing artists, you know, for the last four years of my career and where you're not getting a steady salary, where everything depends on finding a diamond in the rough off the internet. I would scour YouTube and SoundCloud for like, you know, years, like just looking all day long. And it was like trying to find the lottery ticket, man. It was, I was doing it. That was the gambling addiction, like coming out. And I was, and I was like, cause you know how it is. All right. So this is why having you kind of host this episode made a lot of sense. Right. You know, I, and a lot of people listening might not understand that side of the music industry, but like mm-hmm. finding an artist that has nothing going on, say they've got like 200 fans on YouTube or whatever, what are the odds of them becoming Kendrick Lamar? Right. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean, that's what I'm trying to say. Found myself sort of engaging with that again. And I was like numbing and escaping and fantasizing about what this could be. And it wasn't it, by the end of my music career. I, it was very, very, very eerily similar. I would so put all this effort you. into artists and like years with them. And like, you know, it, it wouldn't work out. And I'd basically end up getting like no money for all that time invested, hoping that they were going to become the next, you know, Kanye. It was awful. Where you're at in your life now, when you, you know, do the stock markets and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. how or how does it not sort of your past experience inform, you know, buying stocks and, and betting on companies you know, yeah. on their success with well, dollar, dollar bills. Yeah. I feel like the more work I've done, the more self-aware I've become my motives for being in the stock market and I'll buy lottery tickets here and there. I'll spend like 40 bucks a month on lottery tickets. You know what I mean? And one of my teachers at Antioch, you know, um, is mentored by this really renowned, um, addictions author. He's a PhD Gabor Mate. I don't know if you know who that is. So he said, and this was life-changing, and I think I heard it two years ago, and he said, we shouldn't ask ourselves why the addiction. We should ask ourselves why the pain. Mm-hmm. Because pain drives the need mm-hmm. to go do that. So in, in the, back in the day, like I was reeling from the loss of my father, bro. I was fucking devastated. And I didn't really know how to channel that. So I found mm-hmm. an addiction to channel that. So now as an adult, person like who wants to make money, who wants to do well, like 
you know, I'd re I, I spend some time researching the market. I worked with like a mentor, right. On how to strategies of investment, et cetera, et cetera, like that. I'm trying to do that in a responsible way so that I can like increase my net worth. Like I'm not going to the market. I'm not even going to lottery tickets to like escape. Maybe on the off chance on dumb luck, I'll win. Those are like the two areas where I'm quote unquote betting or gambling. But what's driving those is, is in no way, shape or form what was driving all of that destructive, chaotic. Mm -hmm. um, does that make sense? Even in mm -hmm. music, for instance, like at the end of music, like what drove that was, I was hurting that like the music career that I thought I was going to have Stanford. I started to realize like I wasn't going to, have that career. I'm sure you could find any profession. Maybe it's not even professionally related. Maybe it's just more socially related of, of, of what you thought your life was going to look like or what yes. you thought your career was going to yes. look like or, or whatever it is. I mean, and, and, you know, leaving that behind or, or recognizing that it's not going to be what you thought it was. A marriage. I mean, people, right. People, <laughs> people react to those things, you know, differently. And, and what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, where you are in your life now, it's like, you know, you've done the work and you've, you're continuing to do the work to sort of alleviate and address the pain that was fueling sort of the addiction driven decisions you were making as a teenager, as a 20 something, whatever. And so the driver isn't what it was then. You know, I think there's healthy risk and then there's unhealthy risk. And I think honestly, mm. when I was really deep into my time in the gamblers anonymous program for me, honestly, like I became very risk averse. Like if you risk nothing, then you risk more. Like that could almost be a bigger risk because nothing in life is stagnating. Like it's mm -hmm. either moving forward or moving backwards. So we kind of always need to be stretching ourselves a little bit. What did that, mm -hmm. what did that death feel like for you when the music mm -hmm. path didn't hit you like that anymore? I think it's, you know, realizing, as you said, the thing that you thought your life or your career was going to be isn't. And then you sort of have this. So painful, you know, bro. Well, who, yeah. Like, who am I if it's not this? Because I think at the time out of ego, I tied a lot of who I was to the career I wanted in music. And so, you know, it took leaving Los Angeles for a minute. It took therapy. It took reflection. It took just sort of humbling myself and just like, yeah, life humbles you. It's far more humbling, or at least it was in my experience, to confront the reality that this thing you thought your life was going to be is just not going to be that. I mean, it's almost humiliating, right? It's like this thing that, I mean, essentially you're ahead, you know, you're betting on, right? You're betting on your career being this thing and then it's not. And then you're like, fuck, like, well, what is it if it's not this? You know what Bill Clinton said on that note? That was so good. Mm -hmm. He said that if you give a person a job and a reason for getting out of bed in the morning, 90% of life's problems go away. So I yeah, think I mean, you're I think... susceptible to like all the other shit that like life can throw at you, like now hits you 10 times harder. You know, I mean, you, you grow from it, you learn from it. I wouldn't do anything differently. And I know that's a cliche, right? Like I would have done the same thing. <laughs> and I think there's, there's truth to that, right? Because I think the things that happened to me sort of as I was navigating the music industry and trying to build this, you know, lucrative lit career. I mean, they inform how I think about things now. You know, I can recognize that 20 some, you know, 24, 25, whatever, a lot of things were driven by ego and being able to 
feel solid where I'm at in life, you know, removed from my ego, like it, it, that's a great feeling. Bro, we could become a hostage to our ego. Like literally you're, you're a hundred percent. And I think yeah. a lot, I think a yeah. lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of why you see people get lost in the sauce, so to speak of, of anything. It's not just the music business and it's not just how, I mean, it's people, you know, there are people who work in fucking finance, you know, they need to Wall keep Street. a certain house. They need to keep a certain It's not just a music thing. I think it's just a human thing and, and, and people, their ego getting in the way and it hinders your ability, I think, to sort of reach your full potential because people don't do things for the right reasons when it's like the ego blocking them from getting where they need to get. So yeah, 100%. I say that to say, looking back at my experience, as shitty as it was during the time, without those things, you know, I'm about to be 29, you know, without those things happening, I'm a 29 year old who's still sort of a slave to their ego Mm. and doing shit for reasons that aren't honest or authentic. And I'm grateful to not be doing that. I mean, I'm a student. I have, I will have thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Um, I'm not going, I mean, no one is, but without the pandemic, I'm not going to nightclubs and parties and concerts all the time. Like none of that is part of this, you know, master's level student lifestyle, but I'm not, that doesn't mean what it meant to me then. Now, now it's just, you know, I'm okay with that because you don't need to flex fulfillment. Right. I don't need to flex about anything. I'm feeling fulfillment and passion in in pursuing this this degree in this program so and that's freedom like the not needing to flex is freedom like when you could just drop that weight just like geez man the upkeep to you know what i mean that upkeep of everything you had to have or show was fucking exhausting wasn't it like yeah and that's that's just one slice of the pie i mean this idea of keeping up with the joneses again it goes beyond music it's life you're saying it's a human thing you keep alluding to it and what you're sharing right Mm -hmm. now because society programs us to like you know we're living in a capitalistic society we're programmed Mm -hmm. to think like the big house and and the this and the that and the that and then once everybody reaches that side isn't it cliche at this point to be like i wasn't happy but like yet somehow most people don't get that most people are still on that path pursuing it vigorously despite Mm -hmm. these stories and when they get there, they're probably going to feel likely some of these same feelings. So I think the more messages that we can collect where we're touching on this, you know, even though you or I aren't famous, we were in that world. We had our taste mm-hmm. with that and what we thought it was going to be. It wasn't. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on. And the draw for people, you know, to celebrity, I mean, there is ego involved in that. There are people who are going to believe what Sandra Bullock or you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Randy what, Jackson, whatever. there are people yeah. who are, are going to be drawn to what famous people say because they're, they're famous, famous, right? Because yeah. we've created this, we've given so much value <laughs> yeah. to celebrity. Yeah. And I think there is ego involved in that because aligning yourself with celebrity, it, 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 it's, it's a feel good thing for people. And they would, you know, there are people who might believe things more from people, from celebrities than they would from somebody who is far more knowledgeable, 
but isn't a celebrity. And I think, you know, ego is at the root of so much of what people do at the end of the day. It's, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you come from, though it might happen in, in, in different ways for different people. Life is always going to find a way to humble you. You're going to be going on a path where you're working with disenfranchised population, right? Like people in jails mm-hmm. and prisons. And, and I feel like, can you talk to me about relating what the, the theme of the podcast, which is like connection is magic. Like, can you relate that to, to that yeah. disenfranchised I mean, yeah. population? So, so, yeah. I mean, I think you look at people who either are currently or formerly incarcerated and, you know, these are people who have sort of been written off by society, right? It's, they lose their right to vote. They lose their right to participate in society. They lose their right to certain civic freedoms and, you know, are left with what? I mean, I can't get a job. I can't vote. I'm just sort of here. And so I think because they get written off, a lot of people fail to recognize them as human, right? But, you know, people are, everyone I think is one mistake away from, you know, ending up in that same situation, right? Somebody could make the decision to get behind the wheel of a car after a night of drinking and, you know, something could happen and then they they end up in, in, in prison, right? It's like, we are all human who sometimes make mistakes and sometimes we're the victim of circumstance in our, in our situation, in our surroundings. And so I think when I look at this community of people or this population of people who society has written off, I mean, I think they have stories too. I think they have experiences that, that, you know, are valuable for all of us. Everyone deserves the second chance at connection, right? Absolutely, man. That's our birthright. It's as as important as like sunshine or food or water, bro. Like it's like that elemental to to what we need for like, uh, for our well-being. A hundred percent. Thank you for taking the time, bro. Thank you for, thank you for having me, man. Uh, yeah, I yeah, know this is dope. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you everybody that. for tuning in and, and spending some time with us. And we hope you, we hope you got a lot out of this and I hope you get a better idea of the premise and motive behind the podcast as well. And, um, a better, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel at young Stanny in this bitch. Give me a follow like my page. My man Stanford is nowhere to be found on social media. Uh, so you won't be able to follow him unfortunately, but you can catch him out there in the streets with his fresh Antioch degree. In some, you know, in a you know what's going to keep me warm? In a these, cl- degrees. <laughs> these degrees. Catch them in a clinical setting near you. All right. Maybe. Much love. We'll see you next episode. Peace, y'all. Thank you so much again for tuning in to today's episode. It really means the world to me. If you heard anything relatable that created new awareness for you, please visit our podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or review. This helps build our audience. Please comment, like, and share this episode out with your family, friends, coworkers, or anyone who you feel would benefit from the messages shared in today's episode. I'm really, really grateful for your help in spreading these messages of hope and wisdom. The world is in such great need right now, and your support helps carry the message onward to others who need it. Also, please consider becoming a monthly financial contributor to the podcast. You can do so by visiting connectionismagic.com and clicking on the Patreon link. 
Patreon is a third-party platform which helps support creators in exchange for exclusive content and offers. You'll be able to get discounted merchandise like comfy hoodies, t-shirts, as well as retreat discounts where we'll have special guest speakers and group activities to connect you with like-minded community members. Again, thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, please stay connected.